Hi, this is Fabian Nisiesa, and you're listening to The Nerd Byword. Welcome into the Nerd Byword Podcast, your primary source for all things nerdy. Uh, we have an extremely special guest for today's Byword Big Talk. Legendary comic book writer Fabian Nicieza joins us to talk about his current and past work, as well as his upcoming novel, Suburban Dicks. Uh, but first, Dave is at the news desk with a major development in the DCEU. What's going on in Metropolis, my friend? So as uh, one legend ends, another begins. That's what it looks like when it comes to Superman. Uh, while Snyder's version of Superman, played by Henry Cavill, will take another bow when his cut of Justice League releases on HBO Max, it looks like a new theatrical Superman is already in the works. Variety is reporting that Tanahasi Coates has been hired to write a new Superman movie, which will be produced by J.J. Abrams. According to the news release, Coates said, To be invited into the DC Extended Universe by Warner Brothers, DC Films and Bad Robot is an honor. I look forward to meaningfully adding to the legacy of America's most iconic mythic hero. Now, J.J. Abrams is actually no stranger to Superman, having penned a script titled Flyby back in the early 2000s. And well, it wasn't a great interpretation of Superman. Here, though, he's merely producing, which gives me some hope. Coates is, of course, no stranger to superheroes. He wrote Black Panther and Captain America at Marvel Comics, among other books, and to great acclaim. He's really the factor that makes this reboot so far the most interesting. There's obviously no director attached yet, no actor cast. Right now, all of my excitement rests on Coates. Of course, speculation has almost immediately sprung up uh, online that Coates' version of Superman will be black. If so, great. There are already two versions of Superman that are black in the comics, including Val Zod and Calvin Harris. Uh, perhaps it will be one of those. Perhaps Clark Kent will simply be back black in this version. Th- that's fine. I do think fans are putting the cart before the horse, though. Nothing in the original news release even hints at this story uh, being the story of a black Superman. Although I, as a huge Superman fan, would totally welcome that. I think a wait-and-see approach is best right now. Look, in the end, I'm just excited we're getting a new version of Superman. Cavill was expertly cast, don't get me wrong, but Snyder's approach to the character did very little for me. Here's hoping that Coates captures the essence of the character. If he does, then, to paraphrase Michael Jackson, it don't matter if he's black or white. Chris, what do you think? (laughs) You just went there. Um... So um, I'm super excited about this, and like I I totally echo your sentiments. Like... I think a lot of people are just assuming because it's Ta-Nehisi Coates that it's going to be a black Superman. And that's kind of, of silly, in my opinion, because he he has written black characters with Black Panther. He's written white characters with Captain America. His Captain America is Steve Rogers. So he can do both. Like, I, I think it's a little bit silly, but um, I, I'm excited in, in the quality of of the the team behind this um i have my druthers on on some of uh jj abrams work um you know namely uh rise of skywalker but um 
by and large, the the overt majority of his work I'm I'm a fan of, and I can't say enough about Tanahasi Coates. You know, even outside of his, um, you know, comics work that I've waxed poetic on, like he he is just a really unique mind. He is very precise in in you know his his social commentary and and everything so i'm I'm very very excited about this and and you know no matter if they bring cavill back which you know there were i've seen rumors to that as well that were unconfirmed so whatever happens i'm just glad that there is a good creative team behind it because i feel like that's the primary source that we need in order to get good superman content yeah, exactly right. That's that's what I'm looking for, is great Superman content. Um, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that later in the episode, but that's ultimately the goal. I love Superman. I want good Superman content. I don't care who delivers it, just give me good Superman. Now, Chris, we're going to stick around in the world of DC movies. What have you got? Dave, so like this is your time to shine, okay? This new segment. Um Blue Beetle is coming. Uh, after the initial announcement in 2018, the live-action superhero film centered on the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle is finally making some noise. Mexican screenwriter Gareth Dune Alcocer has reportedly been working on the script since that initial announcement in 2018. Uh, but this week, the, bro- the, the project took a major step uh, forward when, according to The Wrap, Puerto Rican director Angel Manuel Soto was tapped to take on the role of director. Soto uh, recently received a significant amount of acclaim for the 2020 indie hit Charm City Kings and said of the announcement, quote, It is an honor to direct Blue Beetle, the first Latino superhero film for DC. I want to sincerely thank everyone at Warner Brothers and DC for trusting me to bring Jaime Reyes uh, to life. I can't wait to make history together, end quote. Jaime Reyes of Mexican-American heritage is the third character in the DC universe to wield the mantle of Blue Beetle and first appeared in 2006's Infinite Crisis. He was co-created by Keith Giffen, John Rogers, and Cully Hamner. Reyes's story also radically changed the mythos surrounding the Scarab itself, trading in ancient magic in favor of alien and cosmic origins. Dave, you are big fans. Uh, we're both big fans of this character, myself, from the Injustice video games. And I've started reading the John Rogers run a little bit uh, on, on your recommendation. But between this and the Superman news, you have to be over the moon, right? You know, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, I'm hyped. I love Jaime Reyes. He's definitely one of the best additions to DC's pantheon of recent years. Seeing him in a big budget superhero movie would be amazing. But, and yes, there is a but. First, the writer and director both have produced predominantly serious fare, and obviously getting the cultural aspect of the character right is super important. The tone, though, is also part of what I love about the Blue Beetle. The best run on the character by far uh, in the comic books was the very first one, written by John Rogers. He perfectly captured this almost ultimate Spider-Man-esque tone. There was great drama, but there was also great heart and great humor. The balance to get Jaime Reyes right is apparently quite tricky, and I don't think it has been captured by any of the subsequent Blue Beetle series. And trust me, I've tried every time they relaunch a Blue Beetle book with Jaime Reyes as the star. I'm right there trying to, you know, recapture the magic. But so far, nobody in the comics at least seems to have quite gotten there. So right now, when it comes to Blue Beetle, I'm cautiously optimistic. But I'm also a little worried. 
if they don't capture the tone, the essence of that first run on the character, this could be, end up being another over-serious, dour misfire. And I really don't want, you know, Zack Snyder's DC Part 2. So here's hoping Warner gets Blue Beetle right. Yeah, that's my that's my hope as well. And um, I think that's probably why I'm enjoying, you know, the comics that I'm reading in that run so far. Um, my, my hope for this is, in, in the article that I read on this, um, was that it looks like a lot of DC's future focuses in, in the film franchise is going to be, you know, um, you know, solo led, um, you know, feature films for, for, for one character. So my, my fingers are crossed that this is going to be like another Shazam or Aquaman where, uh, particularly Shazam, where they bring that element of, of, of humor and, and in the case of Shazam family, to really to to make that human connection and and that emotional connection and 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 hopefully they'll lean more into that. See, I'll totally echo that. We meet, we need more Shazam, more Aquaman, and less whatever in the world they're doing with the Flash. We're just throwing everybody in there and the kitchen sink. Um, so yeah, I hope that Blue Beetle is tightly focused on the main character and captures the essence of what made that first run by John Rogers so very good. All right, that wraps up our DC-heavy nerd news segment. Stick around after this, our first break. We're going to be sitting down with Fabian Nicieza, co-creator of Deadpool and legendary comic book writer. Stick around. All right, welcome back, nerds. We are here with legendary comic book writer and novelist, uh, Fabian Nicieza. It's Fabian Nicieza. Hola, como están todos? (laughs) Fabian, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you going to have to call me Fabian? Okay, so like, okay, I got to quit my day job. Only my mother, only my mother called me Fabian even when she was speaking English. Se necesita un acento, (laughs) ¿verdad? Anybody who's going to be listening at home just want to know, like, in advance, this is going to go off the rails real fast. (laughs) As in, it already has. Here we go. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's try it again. Fabian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. So we always like to start our interviews, as any good comic nerd will love, a good origin story. So um, what's the thing that sparked your interest in comics and the nerd world at large? Okay. My, I've told my origin story so many times, I, I worry that I need to come up with a new one. Um, it, it, it's It's the kind of typical immigrant little boy story, I guess. I came to this country when I was four years old. Um, My brother's three years older than I am. Uh, We lived in New York City in Queens. Um, He saw Batman and Superman comics on the newsstand rack and recognized them because we'd been watching the Batman and Superman TV shows in Argentina in 1966. Uh, But this was the 1950s Superman show reruns and the 1940s Batman movie serial reruns in black and white on on Argentinian TV. Not the not the show that was running back then with Adam West. We we saw that real quick and we were like, oh, my God. Um, So my brother bought some comics and asked my parents if we could and and. We didn't have a lot of money when we first came to this country, but they were willing to to fork over the whopping 12 cents for a comic book because, uh, you know, they, they just wanted us to shut up, basically. Um, and, and my brother and I just started learning how to read and write English a lot faster from reading the comics. And both of us drew 
because uh, um, my father was an engineer, but he was very artistically inclined. He did a lot of sculpture work and clay work. So he, and painting too, and he encouraged us to draw, even if it was those silly superhero things. And, and that's it. We just started reading comics in late 66, early 67. And, and at some point, a, a, a classmate of my brother's told him, you shouldn't be reading those comics. You should be reading these cool comics. And of course, it was Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and Marvel stuff. So my brother wanting to fit in in America because we didn't want to get kicked out of the country or anything like that. We, that's only the kind of thing you do nowadays, really. But back then, we were afraid. So we got Marvel comics instead. And, and truly, yes, they were better at that time. So we, we just started to get really into Marvel and started getting Spider-Man and um, Fantastic Four. And then I discovered Avengers and realized that for the same price, you can get seven or eight heroes in one book rather than just like one or four. So I started getting Avengers and that became a continuous purchase for me from 1968 until I got a job at Marvel Comics in 1985. Then I got them for then I then I got them for free. I always got them thrown <laughs> up in there just, just to piss people off. I started getting them for free, so I didn't have to buy them anymore. There you go. <laughs> as, now, since you mentioned Spider Man, um, as members, both of us of the hashtag Drunk Pete family, we would really be remiss if we didn't get you to tell us a little bit about the backstory. How did you accomplish this feat? That's never been done before or since, which is to get Peter Parker drunk in Web of Spider-Man number 38. I, I was just trying to sell inventory stories. And if for any listeners who don't know, um, inventory stories uh, were something that Marvel was doing back then, that you had to have a completed issue in your drawer. Every editor needed to have a, a completed issue in their drawer, um, penciled, lettered, inked colored because when the schedule fell down and it always fell down you had to have a book ready to go uh it wasn't like nowadays where you could have a book misshipping and often do have books misshipping because back then still of a, a huge chunk of our of our sales were through newsstand and you couldn't miss that newsstand delivery date or you lost the rack space for the month um so so we got our books out on time. And, and if we couldn't get our main, our regular team to get the book down, done on time, an inventory story was always ready. So it was always a good way for a new talent to try to break in. Uh, a lot of assistant editors would try to sell uh, inventory stories. And, and the first story I sold was a Cyforce uh, story, which was an inventory story, even though it got published immediately. Um, and, I wanted to do a Spider-Man. I wanted to sell a Spider-Man story, and it was a quirky break in a way. Um, uh, my first actual sale at Marvel had been a a Spider-Man inventory story. Uh, the editor Jim Owsley, who you know is Christopher Priest, the writer, um, he purchased a plot uh, pitch that I gave him. I wrote up the plot, and then it never got sent out to an artist to draw. And I didn't know that. And then Jim got fired and a new editor came in. Jim Salakrup took over the Spider-Man books and Jim Salakrup didn't like my, my story. Um, and he killed it. Basically he said, well, I'm not going to send this to an artist. We're not going to do it. They just take it. You get what's called a kill fee, which is you get paid basically two thirds of your total writing rate for the entire issue, whereas a plot by itself is normally one third of the 
writing, right? You're full of shooting script is two things. So it, it was kind of a great learning experience. My first printed sale could have been a Spider-Man book, but it wasn't. Um, it was a good story, quite honestly. It still is to this day. He just didn't like it because it, it, it dealt with a, a nun who was <laughs> who was being an undercover vigilante to a certain extent and, and Spider-Man's conundrum and dilemma because he knows her identity and doesn't know if he should reveal it um, because how would he like it if someone revealed his? So that was his his can't-must conflict for the issue. Um, but that's Water Under the Bridge anyway. So, so I guess Jim might have felt like just 5% guilty that he had killed my first sale, but I'd already sold a few stories by that point to the New Universe books. Um, and, and he 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 asked me if I wanted to send them some more pitches uh, because the Spider-Man books always needed inventory story help. Um, so they, they would burn through their drawer, their drawer quota pretty quickly because um, they had three titles at the time. I, um, I, I gave him a bunch of pitches and, and he got he bought two of them. And one of them was the, the Hobgoblin story where Peter gets drunk. And he had no problem whatsoever with the premise because he understood that Pete didn't do it on purpose and, and, it was an, and, and he didn't mean to, but it, it presented an interesting conflict for the character in the issue, Jim thought. And he said he, if, if I wrote up the plot, he'd have to get it approved. And he wanted to make sure that I wrote the plot first because he thought that would help him get it approved. Um, so, so he was pretty upfront that, that Tom DeFalco may say no. Um, and Tom read it and said, this is no problem. This is fine. And that was it. There was no, it was not a big deal. It was not a, a giant thing. He wasn't shooting heroin or anything like that. He wasn't, he wasn't running a meth lab out of his apartment. He accidentally got buzzed because he drank spiked punch and he didn't know it. Um, but I did it because a, I thought it was a fun bit of a, Bit, a fun bit that hadn't been done before and, and an interesting twist. B, he was relatively close to my age at that time. I was actually a couple of years older than Peter Parker at that point. I think I was like 27 when I sold that story, 26. And Peter was in his 25 or 24-ish. We would, we would nebulously define it. So we would go out after work and drink more than we should and get buzzed and take the train home and whatever. Um, so I just thought it was a very natural thing for for a young guy in New York City to to get drunk. He just happens to be Spider-Man. Um, and, and that was it. It wasn't a big deal. A lot of people in the office read it and thought it was cute. They had no problems with it. It's a pretty innocuous little story. It's not earth-shattering. It's, it's only you morons that turned it into this titanic, fascinating <laughs> thing that it's become. Um, it, it really wasn't in, in its time the only... The, the most memorable thing about that issue for most people was not that Pete got drunk. It was that the, the cover that Bob Budiansky drew was so fantastic. Um, the, the Hobgoblin cover is great. Um, and, and that's what most people remember about that book, not the actual story itself. Yeah, so I, I kind of feel ill-prepared not having any spiked punch for this interview. But Yeah, um, you know what? I was going to get a bourbon for this, but I just decided, no, I'm in too, I'm in too, I was in too foul a mood coming in, so let me just stick to water. We're, we're, already, we're already probably you know, rip-roaring and ready to go without any spiked punch. <laughs> Although, yeah. I will, will let it be said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Muggins, if anybody was running a meth lab out of that Chelsea apartment, it was them. It, I, I don't disagree at all. I I always thought that there was you know some sort of a child pornography ring story that could come out of that couple, that couple. I don't know. <laughs> it was Mr. Muggins who ultimately spiked the punch, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I just I I think I might have honestly been thinking about Mr. and Mrs. Roper to a certain extent, like you know, like <laughs> that kind of a dysfunctional married couple that had been married for 150 years, kind of a thing. You know, it worked. It was fine. It was look it, it, at that point, just getting to do. I ended up writing. I ended up having two Spider-Man stories printed within two months of each other. Two Web of Spider-Man issues. Didn't I think I also wrote 30. I wrote 36 and 38 or something like that. Um, I did the Meteor Man story too, the Looter. Um, I, I, and that was, I think that was the first one that, that printed. The, the, the Drunk Pete story was the second one that printed. Um, and I always loved Spider-Man. I mean, I got to write, within months of selling my first story to Marvel, I got to write the character that got me into Marvel to begin with, which was Spider-Man. You know, um, it, it was pretty cool. So I would have to say that Spider-Man is my biggest fandom, but right behind that, it would be the Merry Mutants of Marvel. So the X-Men line was really in a big state of flux after the abrupt departure of Chris Claremont um, until you and, and Scott Lobdahl between, you know, the adjectiveless X-Men and, and Uncanny, you really came along and put together a really underappreciated run of that era. Um, and taking over for an individual like Claremont is not exactly enviable uh, as a task. How did you guys go about solidifying what you wanted to do with that line? Um, it, we, you know, it's a, those are all, it's a very complicated question because you asked three questions in one and it's not, it didn't take place over the span of a week. It took place over the span of a few years because you may have thought of it was an abrupt departure on Chris's part, but anybody who was on the inside at Marvel knew that this had been building and percolating for quite a while, well over a year and a half. Um, so uh, I already had, I already had gone through my holy crap. I'm writing the X-Men and Chris isn't phase when I, was brought in to script over one of his plots on an issue of X-Men, uh, Uncanny, which was the first time anybody's name had been in the writing credits other than his for years. Um, and then I wrote the next issue because he refused to finish the storyline. I didn't know that at the time. I was told he was going to be on vacation. Uh, that was the editor's go-to to to make make me not have a moral quandary about it. Um, he did the same thing to me when he asked me to script an issue of New Mutants. He told me Louis Simons was on vacation and he needed it done and the deadline was a killer. So I scripted it and later I found out that he, he wanted to see how I would script over over the issue. Um, anyway, so so I I wrote. I scripted issue 278 and then I wrote issue 279, which was like the conclusion of a Shadow King storyline. It was the first time that Chris's name had not been in the writer's box of an X-Men book in 17 years or something like that. Or, um, so I, I, I'd already gone through that and, and it was, it was difficult and interesting and challenging. Um, I, I, I like and respect Chris a lot. Um, I'd known I've known his wife since I worked with her at Berkeley Publishing in the early '80s before he, she'd even married Chris. So I didn't I didn't want to step on his toes. Um, I wanted to respect him, but by the same token, there were struggles going on between him and the editor. Um, as a reader, I myself had lots of issues with some of the things he had been doing, uh, and I wasn't enjoying the book as a reader the way I had been in, in years past. But that was understandable too, because I'd gone through ebbs and flows enjoying the 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 X Men anyway. Um, 
when the image when 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 Chris was was released from the X Men and he got the first three issues of of the new book, it was kind of a it was kind of a, a, a respectful parting gift in a way because we knew that it was a huge huge payday that he was going to be getting for doing those three issues. Um, I I thought there was a possibility that that I might be asked to continue working on the books after he left, but Bob decided to go with John Byrne scripting over. Wilson and Jim's plots and pencils. I knew that wasn't going to last very long. Um, so I just said, if Bob wants to ask me, he can ask me. I didn't have a burning, driving desire to write the X-Men. Um, my emotional connection to the book had kind of really, um, kind of really dried up many years earlier. Um, so even, even though it was Marvel's number one selling book, I didn't have I, if you'd offered me X-Men or Avengers, I would have taken Avengers in a second. I would have much rather have written Avengers because I had a, I, I still remained having a more emotional connection to, to Avengers than I did to X-Men. Um, so when he, he asked Byrne to write it, I was actually a little frustrated. I was like, all right, fine, screw it. Why, it's going to blow up. Watch it blow up. And it did blow up in just a few months. And um, there was this wonderful moment where... Bob comes into my office because I, I was an editor at that point. So he comes into my editorial office and it was after, well after hours, had to be after six. And um, he comes in and he says, I need you to script. Can you script an, an issue of, of X-Men overnight? I was like, overnight, what? He's like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to go into the details of why. But I just go, no, I can't. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here late because I'm going out after work and and I can't, I'm not, I can't, no. And but and part of me was thinking, certainly not to bail you out for burn, you know, <laughs> or to burn, or to bail burn out. I'm not gonna do that, you know. Um and, and as we were talking, Bob's facing me and my desk faced the window, the wall, which was a which was all window. The 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 walls of the editorial offices were all windows back then. And uh, so we could look out over the bullpen and so that they can make sure we weren't doing things we shouldn't do. The offices because that had been that had been a bit of an editorial problem before they did the re, the redesigns um so so as i'm talking to bob behind him walking down the hallway heading towards i think terry cavanaugh's office to deliver marvel comics presents scripts was scott labdell and i pointed behind Bob's shoulder to the window and he turned around just as Scott was walking by and he turned back to me and he goes, no. And I go, yes. And he goes, no. And I go, yes, Scott's going to, Scott's going to be able to do it overnight and he's going to do a good job. Go ask him. And Bob just goes, all right. And he went and asked him. So in essence, I was plunging a, a dagger into my own back without realizing it. Cause, cause Scott hand, did the, did all 22 pages overnight. He did a really good job because uh, uh, he was working his ass off back then. And then once the image stuff finally shook out and the guys were going to be leaving, finally going to be leaving, because that took a while too, um, Bob had asked me to do a two-part inventory story just to, just to basically make sure that um, we had a schedule gap for whenever Jim was going to be done, because we didn't know exactly when Jim was going to be done still. Um, so I did issues... I did a two-part story, which was what R.T. Bear was drawing, which turned into issues 12 and 13. And then, because the image guys left at such short notice, tight uh, timing-wise, to a, an already scheduled crossover, which had no story yet and had nothing broken down or plotted out yet, um, basically, I, I stepped up and said, here's an outline 
for for the, the crossover we have to do, which we don't know what it's going to be. And, and Bob said, okay, this works. We're going to make changes. I said, of course, yeah. But, and, and that was it. That got the ball rolling. So Bob assigned me on X-Men, assigned Scott on Uncanny. I took over X-Force, which I already knew was going to happen whenever Rob was going to leave. Um, and he brought in Larry Hama, I think, on Wolverine, or, or Larry was already on Wolverine. He brought Peter David in on X-Factor. And an executioner song was the first thing we had to do right off the bat immediately because the, the schedule, the budget had already had a crossover plan for it. And those the, the numbers that increase as a result of the crossover help drive your quarterly budget. So so the that quarter, I think it's the third quarter for Marvel, uh, was Ju uh, June, Jul uh, July, August, September. Um, that, that quarter had a planned crossover in it. Um, and we had to have something there. And that was Executioner's Song. It turned into Executioner's Song real fast. We, I handed in an outline, and a week later, we were already having an editorial summit meeting with the X group, everybody introducing themselves, getting to know each other better, seeing what we wanted to do with the books, where we wanted to go with the characters. Um, and that was it. We just got the ball rolling. And, and it, for me, it wasn't any sort of tremendous triumph or, or exhilaration. Um, it, it was... I felt at the time as much as anything that I was I was trying to do something to help support my company because I was pretty damn entrenched in Marvel on an administrative uh, corporate level as I was as a writer. Um, so I had a I felt I had a vested interest in ensuring the company's success uh, because it also meant ensuring my own success. Obviously, if, if the books I work on sell, I'm making more money. Um, and and um, the image stuff w was, you know, it was a need of the groin and, and understandable, an understandable need of the groin. I never begrudged them having the desire to do what they did. I respected the living daylights out of them having the desire to do what they did. I didn't really necessarily like the way many of them went about doing it um, because there was a lot of really unnecessary backstabbing and 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 the cutting of hamstrings going on uh, it's the bill murray from caddyshack thing. If, if, you, if you cut the if you cut the gophers uh, or if you cut the golfer's hamstrings he'll never he'll never play golf again so they felt i felt like they were trying to they were trying to cut our hamstrings so that we'd never be able to make comics again um and and we had we just wanted to prove that yeah we can still make comics and they're still going to sell really really well and and, and they did uh, and and we did so they got what they wanted and we got pretty much what we wanted and everything just kept rolling right after that um the books sold tremendously well i was never a happy cog in that x wheel but but the books made me a lot of money and unfortunately I, I let it ride a lot longer than I should have because I was making so much money um, doing that. Uh, but, but at the same time, I also thought that I, I was, I was doing a lot for my company too. Now you were also part of the uh, creative team behind age of apocalypse. And let me tell you, my buddy, Chris here, that's probably his favorite comic book event of all time. And he finds it to be basically the gold standard I'm for, so happy for Chris. Age of Apocalypse <laughs> is, 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 was, is, and always will be not a positive experience for me. So it, it's, um, I'm glad that, that, that Chris liked them. You know, everyone's allowed to like mediocre comics that are dressed up in really funky, fancy ways. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I was not happy with Age of Apocalypse because we, we had, 
I was not involved in the breakdown of the story at all. I was not involved in the 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 framework of it. I think you can really, if you look very closely, you can tell because it's it's a complete mess more than halfway of the way through. Um, we had a very good, interesting beginning, but we never had an end. And and they were making the end up as they were going along without any real clear knowledge of what that end was going to be until very close to the last minute. So as a result, it wasn't a good writing experience for me because I, I don't like to work that way. Um, I, I don't like that level of spontaneity because often I feel it turns into desperation. And and Bob and Scott thought desperation brought out great ideas. And I thought desperation usually brought out a mess. Um, and, and I always thought, think of Age of Apocalypse as a mess. It's impossible for me to reread all the books, like every, what was it, like eight titles with four issue miniseries? I was just like, forget it. No, um, but, but I also do respect that for a lot of people that were, might have been between the ages of 10 and 16 or 10 and 18 at the time, of course, those books are going to be phenomenal and they're going to be exciting and they're going to be interesting and you're going to have a huge emotional attachment to them in the same way that I have a huge emotional attachment to Engelhart Shooter, you know, Avengers time period and, and, and Jim Starlin's Captain Marvel and things like that, um, because that's when I was of age that I would form that emotional man-boy bond to, to the material. Um, but But I think that the story itself just just became a mess and it wasn't pleasant to work with you got to realize i got fired up from x-force in the middle of age of apocalypse so i knew that i wasn't going to be coming back to x-force while i was writing the middle of gambit and the externals with the writers were waiting to find out what we had to do to keep the crossover moving because we didn't have it broken down beyond the middle um so each of the last two issues on each of my two miniseries were done piecemeal, like five, six, eight pages at a time, because you had to, you didn't know what you were setting stuff up for. You didn't know what you were resolving. So, it, you know, it wasn't it just was not a pleasant experience for me. Um, and, and, I, and I, I say that with the caveat that I completely get why it would be for readers. Um, so. We, Chris, have respectfully very different views on the Age of Apocalypse. Okay, let me ask you this then, because that's very, very interesting kind of getting behind the curtain look at that. Um, you came back and did um, a mini in 2015 uh, centered in that universe during the whole Secret Wars timeline. How was that different? Were you able to tell your own story and, and kind of do it differently? Yeah, I mean it's it's apples and oranges. It's it's they're two completely different creatures. They they asked me if I'd be interested in doing not not a remake of Age of Apocalypse, but the idea of of that story world within the context of the Secret Wars story world. Um, and, and I thought the secret, the new Secret Wars storyline was a bit of a mess too. <laughs> it was, it was a bit of a, it was a just like the original Age of Apocalypse. It was a, it was a kind of a fun, glorious mess, but it was a bit of a mess. Um, and and I just was able to do a pocket miniseries because it took place in a pocket part of the Secret World. The the good thing about Secret Wars is that everything was its own little little land mass right everything was its own little fiefdom so you can tell your story in your little fiefdom and not worry too much about what was going on everywhere else um, and they kind of encouraged not having 
your fingers dip into other pies. So I was able to tell a simple little four part story. Um, but uh, you know, it was, it was what it was. It's a, it's a mediocre miniseries. Um, my, my fun out of it. The only fun I really got out of that for the most part was getting to play with Adam X and, and aspects of what I had wanted to do with Adam X through turning him into burner in that miniseries, you know? Oh God, we're going to get to that. I promise. Um, so you you mentioned this earlier, but you had a falling out uh, at Marvel in '95, and and you ended up leaving to do work with DC in Acclaim Comics, even rising to the editor in chief there. Um, what happened? Uh, first of all, I didn't rise to editor in chief; I was hired as editor in chief. But okay, um, we'll we'll go we'll take a step back. Um, what what happened is that um, I, I there was too many. Uh, there was too much going on that I wasn't happy with, not the least of which was my own work. Um, I, I needed to scale back on the amount of work I was doing because I had burnt myself out. Um, I wasn't able to do a few stories that I felt I had earned the right to do. Um, and that really annoyed me. Uh, there were editorial changes coming and I was not going to be a part of those changes the way I had been wholly and completely led to believe every step of the way that I was going to be. Um, so all of that basically, and I, and I had my first kid uh, in 94. So all of those things all churning at the same time over a one year period made me just go, you know what, I'm taking a walk. I'm going to, it's time to, I've been here 10 years. It's time to just see what else is out there. Um, and, and Masarski, Steve Masarski at the Valiant Acclaim had offered me an executive editor position there. And I said no, because I did not want to, I did not want to go there under the parameters of, of Bob Layton still being the editor in chief. I had no interest in that. So uh, about 10 months later, he came back to me and said, I, I'm ready to offer you the editor in chief job. And, and that was in 96. And I said, okay. And I took the job mostly because I wanted to be an editor-in-chief and run run a comic book company. But, you know, I should have done better due diligence because I had no awareness whatsoever that um, that, that Valiant, the claim, had been, was in such a doghouse with the readers and the retailers. Um, if, I, if I'd done better homework before I took the job, I very well may not have taken the job. Um, but, but it was still a really good learning experience for me, that two-year period. I, I, I learned a tremendous amount. I Masarski left after a year, so I became president and publisher of the company. So I'm learning not only a lot about running running a company, but I got to sit here and negotiating vending machine contracts and making toy sales pitches and, and Hollywood pitches So and licensing stuff. And so I'm getting a tremendous amount of experience and exposure uh, to, to the business side of things. Um, and I'd gotten I'd gotten a lot of that at Marvel, but it was mostly in the creation and the presentation of business related stuff. It wasn't necessarily in the legal and contractual aspect of it. Um, so so I got I got, it was a nice little bookend between the experience I got in the office at Marvel over 10 years and the experience I got at Acclaim in two years. I, I, I left very prepared for any kind of an office job and subsequently didn't take an office job again for like another 10, 10 years. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, that, that was mostly the acclaim thing was mostly to get the opportunity to do what I, I had wanted to do at Marvel, which is to be editor in chief. Um, I'm very lucky I didn't become editor in chief at Marvel since they were going to be gutting 
editorial and gutting the line and gutting everything. Um, And that's one reason why I may have been taken out of the candidacy of editor-in-chief because I would have fought that every single step of the way until they proved to me financially why it was necessary. Um, and, 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 And that was it. So I did a claim for two years. I I closed the company in New York down. I moved uh, because we were not financially viable and I didn't want to keep playing a game with the parent company that that we were financially viable, which had been going on for a while. Um, And and I left in summer of 98, not having a clue what I was going to do next. So I walked out the door from uh, a claim corporate headquarters in Glen Cove, New York on a Friday. And on a Monday, Mark Powers at Marvel called me up and asked me if I wanted to write a Gambit monthly series. And I had, I was like, yeah, okay, I guess, sure. Why not? And I, had no, I had no idea what I was going to do next. I actually was probably, we would have been better served taking a few months off um, because, because you know, a claim had been pretty traumatic. <laughs> having to having to lay off 23 people who are your friends is not easy. Um, and having to close down an office is not easy. Um, uh, so, so, um, so I took the, the Gambit job and that was it. I, I was a freelance writer again, sort of, um, I'd never really actually been a freelance writer solely up until that point. I'd always done my writing while I had a, a staff job. Um, so 98 was the first time I was actually a freelance writer period. Um, and that was it. I just started writing whatever they offered and whatever interested me. Uh, I would pitch sometimes too, but mostly it was always, waiting on a call or an offer so i wrote gambit and then i got the the thunderbolts book after kurt was going to leave um i wrote each of those for quite a while i did a little bit of work here and there for dc um and then i got the cable and deadpool book in 2004 now at dc uh you famously worked with mark wade to relaunch the justice league with midsummer's nightmare which would you know lead into grant morrison's run so many fans still fondly remember this whole JLA relaunch, including myself. I got Midsummer's Nightmare, the trade paperback, sitting on my shelf right now. Why do you think fans still so fondly remember this era of the Justice League? Because it was the first time that the original seven had been back together again in quite a long time. Um, quite a long time, I'm pretty sure. And it was just the original seven wasn't it? For at least the first year of Grant's run, I think. Um, Grant is a very cool writer who does very cool things. So he does stuff that manages to excite the the straight out, straightforward mainstream superhero readers. And then at the same time, he does stuff that attracts and draws from the more esoteric cool kid crowd. Um, who might normally prefer a Vertigo book or an indie book or something like that, or a mature reader's book that has words in it like fuck and shit. Those are very mature reader books. Um, so so Grant does some cool stuff. And, and, and I think that the combination of launching the original seven um, back into the book through a miniseries setup because Grant wanted to hit the ground running. That's the only reason the miniseries even existed. Um, Grant did not want to do the legwork that explained why the seven were getting back together again. So Mark and I ended up doing that story that was, and we knew we weren't going to be writing a monthly book. Um, I didn't know who was going to be writing the book when I was originally first starting on Midsummer Nightmare, but but I knew it wasn't going to be me, and I knew it wasn't going to be Mark. Um, 
So when I found out it was Grant, I went, oh, that's interesting. Cool. Um, <laughs> that was it. That was all. Um, it, that was before a claim, though, guys. That was like 95-ish into 96. I'm pretty sure Midsummer Night's Mare came out in 90, 95 or 96. And then Grant's new JLA started right afterwards. Um, and I, I, I totally get why fans are going to fall for it. Um, and, I, and I was not surprised in the least that it was such a hugely successful book for DC at a time when so many other things were struggling. Um, the, the, that core seven has a little bit of a, you know, seven samurai, magnificent seven kind of a, kind of a feel to it, even down to the Justice League animated uh, theme song that had the characters walking with the sun in the background and their silhouettes as they're slow-mo walking. <laughs> and you're thinking, Hawkgirl, Superman, Green Lantern, why aren't you guys just flying? Why are you walking? <laughs> so so it, it has that kind of a dusty, western, iconic, tumbleweed rolling across the ground kind of feel to it. Um, so so, so I, I think that if they were to go back to that again at any point, after a lapse of not having that for a while, five years or more, you'll get that same kind of excitement, I think, out of, out of readers. Even though by that point, they'll all be in their 50s and 60s, you're still going to get that same kind of excitement. out of it. Because I think those seven together kind of um, connote a level of mythology that is appropriate to that book. And also, quite honestly, very difficult to sustain in the long run, which is why you always have to bring in other characters and mix the team up and all that stuff. Um, it, it's hard to continue to propel stories that contain the mythos necessary for those seven to be together. Okay, so since you've spent time writing the JLA yourself, um, what are your thoughts on the upcoming release of, of Zack Snyder's Justice League on HBO? What the hell are you guys asking me? You guys are just asking me this crap so that you can try to get a controversial poll quote for you to tweet it we've, out. We've already um, made our bed and we have to lie in it. Be I, am not a, I am not a huge fan of Zack Snyder's superhero DC movies. I am pretty clearly on the record. Uh, saying that that being said i have seen every single movie that Zack snyder has ever directed so it's not that i am unfair to him as a director it is that i don't think he understands what it is about these characters that resonate and make people want to aspire to be them um as a result, I do not like his movies when he has DC superheroes in them. I did not like Man of Steel. I like Batman versus Superman tremendously less than I like Man of Steel, and I didn't like Man of Steel. And Justice League was just a mess. So I have actually tremendous curiosity to watch this four-hour megalith of a movie. Um, that he is putting out on HBO Max in just a few weeks, isn't it? Um, I, I am going to watch every single minute of it. I do not expect to like much of it, but I will absolutely watch it. Um, I think he is a director that is worthy of tremendous attention and respect, but that doesn't mean I think he's a director that always tells a good story. Um, he is a remarkable visualist. He has some beautiful things that he puts on screen, but it's not often in service to a 
good, well-constructed, entertaining story. Yeah, you said that a lot more diplomatically than I would have. Um, I am I excited. People turn this into something personal. It's really strange to me. Yeah, it's just, people, yeah. So many people who have never met Zack Snyder feel yeah. the desperate need to defend Zack Snyder. And so many people who've never met Zack Snyder feel the tremendous need to rag on Zack Snyder. And I'm just sitting here going, I don't know the guy. I just look at the movie. That's all. And and. I see some absolutely gorgeous things and I see some things that make me go, huh? And that's all. And oftentimes with his movies, more of it makes me go, huh? than makes me like it. You know, I like 300 a lot. I liked, I actually liked Watchmen. I don't think it was great or nothing, but I liked it. I thought it was a solid B grade movie for me. Um, but, but, you know, I didn't like Sucker Punch, but I'm not going to deny that Sucker Punch doesn't have some really great visuals and some great set design and stuff like that. Um, I didn't like Man of Steel, but there's also some beautiful imagery in that movie. Um, it's just in service to a very poor movie, <laughs> um, very poor script. Um, so, so I wonder sometimes, is it is it him as a visualist or or is it the scripts that he chooses to work with or work from? Um I don't know the answer to that, and as a result, I can't judge it one way or the other. I just, I just judge the movie as a whole as a viewer, and it's my own subjective, personal interpretation of it. And I have just as much a right to my own subjective interpretation of Zack Snyder's movie as you have your subjective interpretation of a comic book I wrote that you read. You know what I mean? It's all the same thing. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, just because I'm a professional writer doesn't mean I can't have a subjective personal opinion about art that I see. You know, I try to be diplomatic about how I say it because I do respect the creative process. Yeah. So like in contrast, like he has a, a new movie coming on Netflix, like I think it's called Army of the Dead. And and that looks, you know, fantastic. That looks super exciting. It seems on brand. It's just hard for me to think of Superman, this this paragon of hope and and. Um, you know, you know, visions of like what we should be aspiring to be, like you said, and and that's just not what I get from those movies. Well, I mean, I think he's he is on record or or has discussed that that he has and he has Randian views and Randian views and 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 people who tend to come from that school of thought um, do not believe in selfless acts and selfless heroism. Um, they always think that there is a, an inherent selfishness to the actions of man. So it's going to be almost impossible for someone who comes into, into it with that viewpoint to be able to look at Superman and go, why would this guy willingly do anything good for others? When he's so powerful, he can do anything he wants for himself. And that, that the dichotomy of that thought is is what ends up twisting the reality and the DNA of who Superman is, you know? And when you have a father who tells a son not to rescue him from a tornado, forget it, you're up Schitt's Creek, you're dead. You know? you're, it's going to be really hard for you to attain that noble, aspirational, help human humankind sort of a mentality when your dad has already told you maybe you shouldn't have saved your school friends from that bus that fell into the water. And maybe you shouldn't save me from a tornado, even though you could in two seconds. So I guess that the Snyderverse version of Clark is a little bit flawed in how he views the world 
Now, um, you also were involved in DC's Convergence event, uh, which revisited, you know, various eras in DC history. I'm just pulling this crap out of your ass. Out of your ass, you're pulling this crap. Yes, <laughs> go ahead. And in working on that series, and as a fan yourself, is there a particular era in DC Comics history that you uh, like the best? Uh, my favorite era of DC Comics history is probably 78 to 85, pre-crisis. Um, uh, um, JLA with Jerry Conway and George Perez leading into uh, even the Detroit GL, JLA, which I loved. <laughs> I know I'm in the minority, but I love the Detroit JLA. Uh, George Perez and Marv Wolfman on Teen Titans. Uh, late 70s covers Engelhart and Rogers on Batman. Early 80s covers Jerry Conway and Doug Mensch. Uh, and Don Newton was one of my favorite artists and favorite Batman artists ever, working on Batman and Detective. Um, that, that's probably my favorite era. Um, uh, although I had, I love Superman. Uh, Superman never excited me as a reader because I couldn't get into Kurt Swan's artwork. Um, but there were several issues of Action Comics and several Superman specials or annuals that were drawn by Gil Kane, which totally drew me in, and I loved them. I loved Gil Kane's Superman work, um, and he wrote. He, uh, Marv Wolfman was writing a bunch of Action Comics that Gil Kane was drawing. Those were some really really fun issues that's when they they remade brainiac and they remade luther's armor and stuff like that um so for me that was my favorite period um i know crisis was super exciting um but that's just as i was starting to work at marvel and i was starting to read it more critically as a professional than i was as a reader and that changed my perspective a bit i i the ramifications of crisis were a bit of a cluster f they were a little messed up. Um, they did not. They, they did not seamlessly and smoothly segue out of crisis into their monthly books. Um, so even though John Byrne on Superman was exciting, um, the, the the world itself, the DC universe itself, was a little confused in '86, '87, '88 in terms of their mainstream continuity. They were still doing great stuff, like Alan Moore swamping stuff, and what was still going on, I think. And, um, they had Watchmen come out and all that, so they they had a lot of good stuff. But but for me as a fanboy, it's it's seventy eight ish to eighty five. So with so much time spent working on Bat Family titles like Robin, Red Robin, Nightwing, several Batman stories, do you have a favorite Bat character that you enjoy writing the most? Dick Grayson is my favorite character in comics. Always has been. Um, I um, I got to write him a, a couple times in his. Uh, monthly book and then I got to write him several times as Batman um, I think I'm the only person possibly uh, no maybe not now that Dan Jurgens was just writing the Rick Grayson stuff I, I think before Dan Jurgens took over after I left the book and Scott left the book uh, the Nightwing book I think I was the only person in comics who had written Dick Grayson as Robin as Nightwing as Batman and as Rick Grayson. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had that going for me, baby. Um, I, I've I just have always liked Dick Grayson since I was six, seven, seven years old. I watched the TV show and I thought, I can't be Batman. He's an adult, but I could be Robin. And that little six year old mentality stuck with me. I could be Robin. That's cool. Um, and I always liked him, always. And, and sporadically got uh, some Titans issues. Uh, 
pre the pre the Marv Wolfman George Perez launch and, and sporadically would get uh, some detective stuff where he had backups in it in in the book and I, I could never find it consistently or regularly. I got a bunch of Batman family stuff whenever I saw he was in it, um, but it was really Teen Titans that really when Marvin George launched that book that really re-cemented kind of re-established how much I like that character and why. Um, and and it, it remains to this day. It's it's odd. It's a it's a childish thing. It's a it's the it's the the whim of a six year old to to latch onto a character and and stick with it. But Dick Grayson's a character. It's really lucky in that he's had several really good writers write several really good runs with him. Um, the, the the Wolfman Teen Titans stuff followed by the Chuck Dixon solo book. Um, you're, you're dealing with some long, long runs there that, that really get you an opportunity to watch the maturation of a character in a really interesting, exciting way. Um, so, so he's, he's always been my number one. Always, always will be, always will be till the day I die. He'll be the one. He's, he's your, he's your Antonio Banderas. He is my Antonio Banderas and Zorro. Yes, he is. I absolutely love that you said Dick Grayson because I have I have a little bit of uh, sidekick fever. Anyways, as a kid, I always identified more with the sidekicks. Yeah, I always liked and, the sidekick and, characters. Look at me; I wrote New Warriors for crying out loud. I always liked the sidekick characters. Always. And he is just—I mean, he's the original, and and in a lot of ways, still the best. So I I I wholeheartedly echo that. He's probably my favorite bad character as well. And I'm sorry, no offense to Tim, Tim Drake, who I've gotten to write quite a bit. And I love, obviously, I love writing that character because I think I've done a really good job with him and could have done an even better job if I'd had more time with him. Um, but but I like Tim Drake tremendously from the moment of his introduction through his, his solo book that Chuck Dixon wrote. Um, I've always liked Tim Drake, but Dick, Dick is still number one. Now, you're uh, writing X-Men Legends for Marvel, a book that is being billed as a story nearly 30 years in the making. So what made you want to tell this story? Was it something that you pitched to Marvel? Did they approach you? What was uh, the, the it was a, it's, a, it's kind of a weird combination of both. Um, I, I never got a chance to tell the miniseries story that I wanted to tell. I, was, I, was, I, I laid in a subplot that the editor really liked. I introduced a character that the editor ended up not liking. I get why he didn't like it, because I don't think I introduced him well enough the first few appearances he had, but I did it badly. On, I did it on purpose, not not that I did it badly on purpose, but I did it on purpose to introduce him in a bombastic way because I knew where I wanted to go with him. And in order to get where I wanted to go with him, I thought it would have the most character arc if I introduced him in an over-the-top way leading towards the maturation and the importance uh, of the character and what he would find his where he would find his place and, um, and and getting to that place was the story so I I ironically I pitched him like knowing that in the first act he's an imbecile and an ass and over the top but I'm doing that because I know by the end of the third act, 
he's the boy who would be king. You know what I mean? And, and when you never get a chance to show your second or third act, all everyone's ever going to look at is the first act. And they're going to go, wow, that's really stupid. And you're going to be like, well, I, I guess it is. But let me tell you, the second and third act would have been kind of okay. Um, and that, that was the, that was the, for 25 years, that was always the shrug of my shoulders, which was, I never got to show a second and third act. And I knew what they were all along, you know? Um, I had enough notes on the outline of the original miniseries still in notebooks down in my basement that quite frankly, I was able to pitch it without a problem because I knew what my beginning, middle and end were going to be. Um, when Mark Basso called me about X-Men Legends, I had just finished up Juggernaut. It was well-received at Marvel. The, the editors, the people there were talking about it positively and um, <laughs> they knew they were launching X-Men Legends. So um, Mark, Mark contacted me and asked me, would you like to pitch three issues, um, probably for the first year, three issues, uh, a two-parter and a one-parter? If you have any stories you didn't get a chance to tell, and I laughed, I said, every story is a story, Eddie. I didn't get a chance to tell the X-Men. Um, but, but the question is, 25 years later, do I still want to tell those stories? And I, I, before I said yes to him, because I never say yes to most anything that Marvel asked me to do without serious contemplation for fear of, of not being happy. Um, I, I, I said, let me, let me look through some stuff and then get back to you. Um, so I, I read through, I not read through, I flipped through my entire run of X-Men trying to remember where there were stories that I didn't get to tell or where I wanted to go with it. Um, and I realized that there were not that many. There, there just were not that many stories that I felt an emotional connection to to want to go back to to revisit. Um, so the only stories I had were Adam X and a couple others. That's it. Um, and, and and I pitched him Adam X as the two-parter. And, and then I pitched him three different self-contained story ideas because I knew that I'd, I'd, oh, I'd originally thought about doing that with that. And I had originally thought about doing this with, during that sinister issue. And, I'd, you know, and that was it. So he got back to me and he said yes to the Adam X two-parter. That was the only two-parter I pitched him. And um, I said, if you don't like it, I just won't do a two-parter. I'll do one issue and that'll be it. Um, and he said yes to the Adam X. And I said, you know, this is confirming what was going to be. And he goes, yeah, no, we know that. We understand. I go, you realize I'm trying to talk. I was trying to talk my way out of it almost every step of the way. <laughs> you realize that if we do this, he's going to officially be a brother. Yep, we know that. It's okay. I was like, oh, my God, please give me a reason to say no. Um, so so that was it. And And – I said my biggest dilemma is going to be taking 88 pages of original story content and and bringing it down to 40 pages. That's going to be tough. I'm going to have to cut a lot. And I handed in the both scripts to the first two first two issues. We didn't even know they were the first two issues at that point. It was just it was just two issues. That's all it was. And then they got back to me and said, "We're going to launch the book with this story. We can add 10 pages to the first issue." And I said. I really need 10 pages of the second issue, quite frankly, but okay, because <laughs> I really did. Um, and, and and that was it. I added 10 pages to the first issue. It, it gave us a little more room to breathe. It gave Brett a little more big art to do. Um, but but I'm, I got 50 pages to tell it what was an 88-page story. And, and unfortunately, what I had to cut was a lot of the slower stuff, the, the 
the the developmental beats between the characters as they're coming to a realization of who they are to each other and what they might mean to each other moving forward to the future all of that i can't give too much away i don't know when this is airing but the second issue is not out yet so um i I don't know if you guys are running this before the second issue comes out or after the second issue comes out um so that makes a difference in how i can talk about it so i have to ask who has the more complicated family tree the summers or logan I don't know Logan's family tree well enough to tell you to tell it because anything that they've done with that was after I no longer was reading any of that stuff. I never even read that, that Wolverine origin story they did 20 years ago. The, the one that, the, what was it called? Um, yeah, I think it was the, origins. I think Paul Jenkins what? did that one. Yeah. 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 I never even read that. So I can't even tell you. I don't even know. I, I don't even know. I just, somebody told me his name is James Howlett and I laughed and that was it. So, <laughs> somebody somebody put on Twitter yesterday and and I got stark raving mad that James Howlett is Howlett the Moon and and that's his name. It probably is to tell you the truth. <laughs> so so I I can't tell so I would imagine that Scott's is only cuz I don't know what Wolverine's is. So there. I can only really imagine that any inhuman's character has a much more convoluted one because they've been inbreeding for the last 3,000 years. (laughs) So you mentioned Juggernaut, uh, a a series that you're writing as well, um, who is one of the most fascinating villains slash anti-heroes slash characters of the X-Universe while not being a mutant himself. Is it challenging writing right now with an X-adjacent book in this Krakoa era? Um, It... It was one of the main reasons I said yes immediately. Um, I told you that I don't say yes that often that quickly, but this was an interesting... In September of 2019, the week after Labor Day was a really, really exciting week for me. Um, That's when an agent told me that they were going to represent uh, my book. That's when... um, I, I signed the, I think they signed the contract for the second season of Outrage. Uh, that's when an animation Bible uh, was was uh, green lit for completion, which meant I, you know, I got a bigger paycheck for finishing the animation Bible. And then a Marvel editor calls me up for the first time in like two years outside of Custom Comics and offers me a juggernaut miniseries, not even pitching for a juggernaut miniseries because I wouldn't have done that. Just offers me the juggernaut miniseries. I, to this day, I've never asked Jordan why he offered it to me, but, but he did. And I had just finished reading the initial Hickman miniseries that had come out that summer. And I really was fascinated by the entire setup that they were doing. I thought it was crazy, wild, interesting, fun. And I said to Jordan, He's not allowed on Krakoa, though, because at that time, humans weren't going to be allowed on Krakoa that early in the ballgame. And, and Jordan said, exactly. That's why it'll be interesting. What does he do? And I said, yes, totally. Um, and, and, and before he hang, and I said, I'll, let me think about it. I'll put together a five issue synopsis. And, and before he hangs up, he, before I hang up, he goes, oh yeah. And by the way, the last time he appeared, he had the gem ripped out of his body and he was, he was uh, relegated to limbo. And I'm like, what, what, what? Click and the phone hangs up. <laughs> oh crap. Um, 
And I, I, I try to avoid that kind of continuity now because nobody else respects it enough to try to bridge those gaps between what happened and where you are um, when you start something again. But I'm not that kind of writer. So I looked at what happened. They sent me the issues. And I said, okay, this is even better because not only is he no longer going to be allowed on Krakoa after he'd been re- redeeming himself as a member of the X-Men, but he doesn't have his powers and his powers are everything to him because he's absolutely nothing without his powers. He's like, And he knows he's nothing without his powers um, because I wrote that already. I wrote a miniseries called X-Men Forever in the early aughts that Juggernaut's, half of Juggernaut's appearances in that book while they were bouncing back through time was him in jail, stranded in another dimension, or in a block of cement. So every time every time he woke up in a specific time period, he realized what an absolute loser he was because he wasn't able to participate in what was going on because he was out of commission, you know? Um, so so I, I felt very comfortable getting back to that character. And, and in many ways, without having read all of the appearances he's had between then and now, I felt like it was a kind of natural continuation of how I set him up at the end of X-Men Forever. And so long as I wasn't contradicting any established continuity, which I wasn't, I could in my mind just pick up the redemption flow straight from there. Um, And and that's kind of what I did. And and getting an artist like Ron Garney really helps because getting an artist like Ron Garney means you're going to have really effing fantastic artwork, um, which makes you enthusiastic about doing the work too. Um, Ron didn't come aboard till I'd already finished scripting issue two, but but it made a huge difference in my enthusiasm to 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 you know really bear down and and have really tightly controlled stories. I knew I wanted to do five self-contained stories with running subplots. Um, I did that as much to challenge myself as anything because I after writing so many comics, I I want I want to make it you know interesting for me to do. Um, so, so I liked it. I'm pretty happy with it. I haven't read it as a whole yet. I've read them all as individual issues. Um, I, I'm actually going to read it as a whole when I get the trade paperback. So that'll be in a few months because um, I'm, I'm curious to see how it reads as a whole versus how it read as as individual issues. Because quite frankly, I, I structured them as individual issues. Um, but I liked it a lot. He's a great character. I really enjoy him a lot. And, and and hopefully um, I'll get to write him again a lot sooner than you expect. Now, you have been writing comic books for a hot second now. Um, how has writing in the industry changed? How does it compare now to the earlier days uh, of your career in the business? It's it's way too hard to really break down in, in, in a from a single person's point of view. I think it really requires roundtable discussions to really get a feel for how different people's interpretations of it are. I, I think that it, it, there's there's a kind of a cause and effect. The, the, the audience that you're writing for tells you the kind of book they want, and you then write that kind of book for them, which means that you're writing it's 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 kind of a snake eating its own tail in a way and, and i don't say that negative i don't say that as a disparagement i mean we wrote books that were supposed to be read by people ages eight to 80 that was the the joke that tom defalco would always say and you'd be like that's one hell of a long stretch of a rubber band isn't it but but the idea was that an eight-year-old can be reading 
a, an issue of X-Men or Marvel or Spider-Man. And so could a, a, a 38 or 48 or 58, you know, um, I, I sincerely doubt that there's a single writer writing for Marvel or DC right now on their regular line of titles that even conceives of an eight-year-old reading their book, um, even even cares about an eight-year-old reading their book, unfortunately. Um, I, I think that the, the books are all being written for, uh, for, for readers who know all the tropes of all the characters. And as a result, there's a self-fulfilling maturation of the medium that does no longer allow for fun and rarely allows for bombast and excitement. Everything is measured and metered by experience. You have experience as a reader having read it. I have experience as a writer having written it already. So let's Let's dispense of the six pages of action. Let's just show the ramifications of that action and then have all the characters talk about it. Because ultimately, ever since Marvel switched to full script, it became quite a masturbatory writer's medium. And I've lost count of the number of pages that I see in, in books now that are nothing more than a character talking to a reader <laughs> it's an empty panel of just a character talking nine panel grids six panel grids whatever i just i think i read two pages of that last night in some um and and that's completely antithetical to the kind of writing that we were encouraged trained and taught to do when i broke in in 85 um and again a lot of that is because of the audience expectations and demands. So I read a lot of reviewers reviews of the X-Men Legends book and it really I really, really was I really was enjoying the hell out of reading them. They're, 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 we just dive right into action and there's so much action in this book and I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, so what? So you you you've you've seen action a million times before, so you're bored by the action, but you're gonna sit here and tell me that you haven't seen characters talking to a camera a thousand times in the last 20 years and you're not bored by that? I mean, it, so to me, it's masturbatory writing for masturbatory readers. And that is a disparagement. I do say that in a disparaging way. Um, but I understand why it's being done because the readers want to justify why they're still reading this crap at age 50. And the writers want to justify why they want to pretend that it's an advanced intelligentsia medium. You know, every generation wants to wants to do wants to do one one step more than the generation before in terms of whether it be violence or language or theme or subject matter or approach. And this current generation of writers have all grown up in in an age where talking was showing <laughs> and and we grew up in an age where showing was showing and and as a result comics talk about a lot of stuff mainstream superhero titles talk about a lot of stuff but they rarely show a lot of stuff 
So let's transition to your upcoming novel. Uh, oh, something positive. Thank you, because I just <laughs> I was just a total Debbie Downer for you guys. Wow, what a what a bitter, well, complaining old man. He's really not. He just you know doesn't feel the need to watch have characters stare out a window at the rain for nine patterns. You know. Well, I'm, and I will I I will second what you're saying too, because my my son is 11 and he is big into superheroes. We it's a bond that we share. We go to our LCS together and we pick up, you know, amazing Spider-Man books and, and, and titles that he's interested in. And he'll get on my Marvel Unlimited and he'll read a couple of issues, but then he'll just be overwhelmed by all these things. And like, he'll just like, well, I'm just going to go back and watch Steven Universe or I'm just going to watch anime, something that he can easily and readily pick up, you know, versus comics. So it's it's I, I, I tend to agree with what you're saying. Yeah, the language has gotten a lot more complicated. Take a look. Take a look objectively. The next time you read ten books and count how many of them are telling a linear story, versus how many of them have constant cutaways. You know, then, now, four days ago, present. You know, and and they picked it up from TV writing, and TV started doing it as a way to create a false illusion of drama that would drag you through the first 40 minutes before you got to the the high point of drama. Usually you would start and build to that drama, but they decided because there was so much television and you've seen so much television, let's show you the drama up front and then flash back to how we got there. And TV started doing that a lot in the aughts and comics then started doing it a lot too because a lot of the writers were drawing on TV tropes. We didn't used to draw on TV tropes back then. You know, we drew on comic book tropes and nine times out of 10, that was linear storytelling. You, you, you just progress your story in, in regular time from the beginning to the end or the cliffhanger or whatever. But they don't, I didn't do it either, by the way, in Juggernaut. So I'm, I'm, I'm not immune to doing that same kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just citing it and explaining it as an example. Um, and I think that's very hard for 10, 11 year olds to really hang on to. I, I think linear storytelling is important to that age because their their brains haven't yet developed the storytelling function that allows them to be able to juggle the time elements and the time frames that a story is being told in inside their head and keep it straight. So they get they get confused, they get bored and they walk away. You know, it's understandable. I, you know, I, I'm not the brightest bulb in the world. I'd walk away from it, too, if I was 25 years old, much less 11 years old, you know. Yeah, for sure. I can't get him to sit down for 20 minutes and do homework. So how can I get him to bounce around all those complex? Well, some teacher you are. <laughs> <laughs> you're really you're really taking yourself out as teacher of the year and can't get his own kid to do homework. <laughs> well, I, I, I teach related I teach related arts, so I do that by choice. So Oh, there you go. <laughs> so where were we? My novel, my book, my hoity toity entree into the world of literature yeah um, so with uh, an impending title uh, so it's, it's definitely got an impending purchase for me just because the title is suburban dicks alone so so tell us everything fair enough reason that you you can pre-order it now by the way just so you know um i i a little boy named fabian in 1994 had an idea for a book that that had a beginning, middle, and end, and the characters all fleshed out. And 17 years later, he got like the confidence to do it, so he did it. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the story. I've had this book in mind for 25 plus years. Um, it, it it was born 
inspiration was born out of some issues that the community I lived in was having with an outdoor gun club, um, an indoor outdoor gun club that was close enough to the, to our community that occasionally they'd miss their target berms and we'd have bullets lob our way. So we were trying to fight them in the town council to get them to stop outdoor shooting. They're allowed to continue indoor shooting, but not outdoor shooting. Now, mind you, the gun club had been there for 50 years, and all these developments were all being built on former farmland, including the one I had moved into. Um, and we lost the battle in the, in, in the town council. We lost by one vote. And I, I, I just thought to myself, man, I'd love for these guys to, to, to shut down. It would be wonderful if something could shut them down and and i'm a writer so like let's say i was a, i was a mob guy i would have hired someone to burn the place down you know what i mean but i'm not a mob guy i'm a writer so i came up with a fictional story where <laughs> the gun club would get their comeuppance and that quickly evolved in my head into something where the gun club was just a tiny little minor part of the whole thing, you know? Um, but that was the inspiration for the book, getting comeuppance. What if something they did years ago was found out now and it caused enough repercussions that it would shut them down? And what if they killed someone and buried the body? That's, that was the, there it was, that was the inspiration for the book. And I, I, I just never had the confidence to write it. And, um, and in 2017, toward the end of the year, I'd had a really good year and I wanted to try something different. And I told my wife, I'm going to try writing a book. I got no idea if I'm going to be able to finish it. I got no idea if it's going to be good. I got no idea if I'm going to be able to sell it. And even if I do sell it, it'll probably be to a mystery paperback company and it'll sell for five or $10,000. And it might take me almost a year to do it. And she's like, you're really not doing a good job selling this. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I just got to give it a shot. And she said, okay. So I just tinkered away on it all through 2018. Uh, it was never my primary focus. It, I, you know, paying work and scheduled work was always my primary focus. So there were some times where I, I'd go a week or two without writing anything, you know? Um, and I just got through it. Um, and, and it was also a hard year for me in 2018 because I lost my mom, my dog and my dad in that order within six months. Um, so, so it was, it was fun. Um, and that derailed me a few times, but I finally finished it in early 2019, um, hired an editor to read it and give me feedback on how to cut it because I knew it was way too long. And she gave me her thoughts and they were really good cogent notes. So I cut, cut, cut. Um, I acquired an agent as a result of business contacts I had. And he really liked the idea of the book a lot. Um, and when I submitted it to the agency, he, he read it and a group of his people read it. And they loved it and came back to me with uh, some ideas to, to do some changes and to cut, cut, cut. So I cut, cut, cut some more. The original manuscript was like 540 pages. I think the manuscript I delivered to the publisher was 390. So that gives you an idea how much I cut. Um, and, and, um, and that was it. He took it out in November of 2020. Um, and we had five publishers who wanted to buy it, which was astonishing to me. Um, it, it was it was the most fun I've had as far as being a professional writer since the early 90s, working on all the X books and all those sales and, and the numbers that we were getting. Uh, to have five publishers all bidding on a book 
and two of them dropped out pretty quick, but then three stayed in the bidding for a week. And then it was down to two publishers and that turned into a two book offer because each of them were trying to sweeten the deal. So all of a sudden I wasn't just selling one book. I was getting a guarantee of a second book in the deal. Um, and I ended up making the choice to go with uh, Putnam Publishing, uh, which is a division of Penguin Random House, because when I got out of college in 1983, my first job was working uh, for Putnam Berkeley Publishing before they were purchased by Penguin Random House. Um, I worked for Berkeley Publishing, which was a paperback book division, and Putnam was our hardcover book division. So that was my first job out of college. And, and part of me thought, the editor, the editor involved has a really good reputation. The company is part of Penguin Random House, so it's a you know, big, strong conglomerate with ins into the bookstores, etc. But I like kind of the story to tell that I'm, I'm writing a book for the company I worked for out of college. Um, and, and that was the backstory that got us to, to, to the book. And Suburban Dicks is a, a sarcastic murder mystery. Um, it, it is set in the towns where I live in, uh, which is the, the Princeton area in New Jersey, West Windsor, Plainsboro, Lawrenceville, this whole little area that I've been in for 30 years. Um, it is about a 34-year-old, should-have-been FBI profiler who is pregnant with her fifth child. Uh, her first child, who is about 10 or 11, uh, is the reason why she didn't become an FBI profiler, because she got pregnant at the end of her senior year in college. And she has been unfulfilled in her life ever since, because she should have been solving murders. Uh, she, she solved a murder in high school, and she solved a massive serial killer uh, uh, murder in New York City in college. Uh, so it's what she should be doing because she's really good at it and she hasn't done it. Um, and the secondary lead, and her name's Andy Stern, uh, Andrea Stern. And the secondary lead is a reporter named uh, Kenny Lee. And Kenny won a Pulitzer Prize when he was in college for breaking a story that tore down the administration of the New Jersey governor and eventually led to the resignation of the New Jersey governor. Now, 10 years later, Kenny Lee is working for a weekly suburban newspaper in his hometown. Um, and that tells you a story of how Kenny Lee crumbled in the last 10 years. So Kenny and Andrea knew each other. He's younger, but he's 29. She's 34. Um, they knew each other because she used to date his older brother in high school. Um, and he was always secretly in love with her back then, but he was a little kid. And the two of them get together and try to solve the murder of a gas station attendant uh, in, in a West Windsor gas station uh, that, that Andy suspects goes beyond robbery or beyond just the murder of the gas station attendant. She thinks he was killed because there are people trying to cover something else up. Uh, the question is, what is it that they're trying to cover up? And the cover-up dates back to something that happened 50 years ago, and the police, aspects of the police department and aspects of the, of the township government have been involved in the cover-up generationally now for 50 years. And, and she starts to uncover all of that um, along with Kenny. And, and, and that's it. It's a... It's a little bit of a look at the changes in 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 suburban demographics. Um, I live in an area that is like 80% Asian, 
um, Indian and Chinese, Korean, Pakistani. And in 1989 or 1990, it was about 45% Asian or 40% Asian, you know? So the, there's been a demographic shift that has happened in my town um, that I've watched happen all around me because I've been here for so long. And the stories, themes, and subtext are really about white fear of change and white flight from change. Um, and and what we do to try to maintain a, a, an illusion of a status quo that feels safe to us. So there are all these underlying themes to the book that I'm really happy that they, they played out strongly. Uh, the readers who've read it all see it, all, all get it, but it's all within the veneer of a pretty fast moving, sarcastically funny um, kind of a, a, a tone to the whole thing. Um, so if you've read my comics over the last 35 years, you'll see it's me. You know, you'll see all of me in it. It, it it's got a lot of my observational, sarcastic nature. Um, I call I call the narrative voice omniscient snark. Um, and, and and the and the editor the editor everyone who's read it has been really really supportive and positive about it. Um, I'm really happy. I'm very surprised, pleasantly so, because. As a writer, most times I just shrug my shoulders and go, I hope it doesn't suck too much. Um, so so I was really, really happy to hear so many people come back to me and say, no, my friend, it doesn't suck at all. It's really good. Um, and, and I just finished the second manuscript uh, um, oh, a couple months ago, and I delivered it to the editor yesterday, uh, last, last week. What's today, Tuesday? I think I delivered it to the editor last Tuesday, so a week ago. And now I'm in the same kind of limbo, which is waiting to hear what they think of the second book. Um, it's the same characters. It's still going to be it's a different title for the book, but it's going to be subtitled The Suburban Dick's Mystery. And, and I hope it sells well enough that I get to do more. Um, we, we have a TV option on it, but I can't I can't announce it yet with who it's with. But we're going to we're talking we're going to start talking to showrunners real soon, potential showrunners real soon. And I hope that it gets picked up as a TV show because I think it would make a really, really good TV show like on a streaming platform and TV shows tremendously help the sales of the book, which means I maybe get to do more because I would like to keep doing more. If I can do this through my sixties into my early seventies, I'd be really, really happy. Um, I'm 59 this year and, and turning 60 at the end of the year. So to me, it's a great kind of last act to my career. Uh, something completely different than what I'd done before, but it still feels very much a part of me. So you said completely different, which uh, brings us to our next question. What to you are sort of the principal differences between writing a novel and writing comics? Um, that's a great question. Um, I haven't written enough novels to really feel comfortable being able to answer it without sounding like a total douche. I've only written two books. Um, I, I I think what I've tried to do is is draw from the strength of comic writing to help me with my prose writing. And that has really benefited me, I think, uh, with my dialogue, with my brevity of, of, of scene location descriptions, which helps a lot because um, too many writers get lost in describing minutia that doesn't really advance the story. So it just... You know, it just kind of, kind of makes it, again. It's it's a, you know, you're chasing your own tail when you're doing that. Um, and, and it really has helped me tremendously with my my ability to pace my chapters. So my chapters are 
are brisk and solid, but almost always end on a good cliffhanger that makes you want to read the next chapter. And that's really important for book reading, especially for semi-mystery books. And I don't even think of myself as a mystery writer because I don't think I am. Um, the mystery is really just the cause that gets you through the narrative from point A to point Z. To me, I'm an observationist, so I'm trying to make observations about humanity and, and, and our world. And since my world is suburban life, that's what I'm focusing on. Um, so, so I get to do a little more of that in the book than I get to do in comics. Um, it, it's not the prose isn't heavy prose. I try not to because I used to try to do that whenever I did try to write prose in the last 25 years. One reason it took me so long to write this book is because I was never happy with anything I wrote. I just thought it was pretentious drivel. It just sounded like bad watered down versions of other writers. So it, I, I'm trying to mimic Stephen King instead of trying to write me. And I, and my favorite was trying to mimic this tone and style of someone like James Elroy. And I reread what I like 20 pages I wrote. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is the worst James Elroy ever. <laughs> how does James, how does James Elroy do it? <laughs> um, and, and then I realized, wait, I'm getting a little bored with James Elroy because he's overdoing it. Okay. I get it. Um, it, it took me a long time to, to cut out all of the pretensions out of what I thought a book should be and just write what I felt like writing and how I felt like writing it. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to overwrite. I want it to be, I want it to be entertaining. I want it to be brisk. I want anything that leaves you thinking. I'd rather that be after the fact, not during the fact, during the process. You know what I mean? So I think that I think in the first book and even more so in the second book is the second book's themes are about marriage and, 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 and suburban coexistence between husbands and wives um, and, and the, the never ending stultifying, stiltifying boredom and repetition of suburban life. Um, and, and since I'm 59 years old, I have, you know, about 54 years of experience of still defying existence of suburban life. Um, so, so, so there's it's a couple of people already told me that the second book is depressing as hell, but also brilliant. So I was pretty happy about that because I think it is depressing as hell. And I hope it's um, because she's not in a good marriage, the, the main character. Um, the, one of the main reasons she's not who she should be is because her husband has been afraid of letting her be that and they've he's always been able to use the 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 uh the easy pull of well we have five four kids to to raise and we have a house to maintain and i'm going to work you have all this to do you know and 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 that's not fulfilling to her which i understand you know um so so it's about her having to get through the first book is about her her coming to the realization that this is who she should be. She should be someone who is solving problems, murders, crimes, whatever. That's that's just in her DNA. And the second book is about her coming to terms that in order for her to be who she needs to be, she may not be able to ever become that as long as she's married to this man. So that's the you know so the, there is that that kind of sad tragic through through thread to the whole second book. Um, so, so, you know, I, I, the differences are that you get to explore 
character more in depth in a book. But conversely, a book is a self-contained unit. And I got to explore Baron Zemo for 75 issues in a comic book. You know what I mean? So it's if you read 75 issues in a row of Thunderbolts, you're going to see a tremendous kind of character arc for Zemo. You know what I mean? So that's no different than a novel in, in and of itself. It's just told in a different way. Um, so so I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I did approach the book differently than I would a comic book. It's not as visual, a, a, it's not as visual a medium, obviously. And I didn't try to describe things that should be visually connoted in your mind overly much because I, I thought... I don't think that's a strength of mine to try to do that. Um, it's funny, I'm rereading the stand right now and I'm realizing that Stephen King go on for two, three pages in this book describing a room and you're like, I don't care, I'm done. Like, you know, let's move on. I don't care what's in the room because you know, the room's not even going to matter in, in, in two chapters. You know, they're not even going to be in the room in another chapter because they're leaving town. So what do I care what's in the room? Um, so I didn't, I didn't need to do that. I I I um I I just wanted to make it a a, a brisk, crisp, fast-paced book that had interesting underlying themes to it, and and, and interesting characters because I do think I have interesting characters. I think that that my main characters are tremendously conflicted internally and externally, but they both approach it with kind of an arrogant snark to them that's both endearing and entertaining. Um, so 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 that that's my that's what I'm trying to do, and, and I want to do more of it because I like it quite honestly. Um, it's fun, it, it, you know. It, it's it's a different kind of fun than writing comics or writing video game crap or writing, you know, academic crap for for, you know, intellectual property management that I've done also. Um, but but you know, at the end of the day, you're still you know, your fingers still have to hit the keys and the letters still have to form words. So it's it's all writing one way or the other. So you have teased us a little bit about future projects so i'm, I'm gonna pivot a little bit and 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 amend my my next question um as the co-creator of deadpool you're now celebrating the 30th anniversary of the character what is the thing looking back that you're most proud of of such a popular character that you had your hands on ultimately probably the fact that that i i i gave him the the conflicted tragedy that that led to the depth the character has to appeal to people. Um, so by giving him, by giving him the cancer that led him to 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 try to get rid of the cancer, that led him to successfully getting rid of the cancer at the cost of his humanity. Uh, ultimately, that that tragedy. Um, helps helps make him Bugs Bunny meets Frankenstein's monster. And, and I, I brought that to him. So I'm pretty proud that that ultimately is what resonates with fans of the character tremendously more than how he looks or what he does. And often even more so than what he says, because it's the underlying, it's the underlying tragic conflict of the character that makes his humor um, so, so much more potent and so much more vibrant, um, and 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 that's what m nearly all of the readers get out of it. 
Um, so, so I, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty proud of that. And, and from a comic book standpoint, getting him to wear Marvel Girls 1960s miniskirt costume in Cable and Deadpool really ranks right up there too because <laughs> thank god for patrick zerker because i wanted to have him wear the costume for that entire storyline and he said there's no way i'm drawing him in this for the entire storyline you have all this serious stuff going on with cable you cannot have this guy do this for three issues and i'm like all right he is a, he, patrick was willing to draw him in the costume for like three pages and that was it and he his call was a a thousand percent right because that that made it even sweeter and just that tantalizing glimpse of panty we got was just phenomenally entertaining and enjoyable all of it worth it 30 years of of writing 35 years of writing all boiled down to we got a tantalizing glimpse of deadpool's marvel girl costume panties (laughs) there you go I, I have to say this as well. Um, my 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 other son is is uh, nine now, and he's he's on the spectrum, and and autism is a wild ride. And he was nonverbal for the first like three to three and a half years of his life. And one of the first things that he really gravitated towards and fixated on was Deadpool. So thank you for you know burgeoning something in him to to really sure, make him that, come out of that, his shell. Uh, there's nothing I can't be any prouder of anything other than introducing Deadpool to nine year olds. My God, another <laughs> teacher. The teacher's here. <laughs> no homework. Nine year olds reading Deadpool for the love of God, man. <laughs> now we uh, we typically end our show with what we like to call our nerd commendations. Do you have any particular pieces of nerd media that you're currently enjoying that you could nerd commend to our audience? Oh boy! Well, duh. WandaVision uh, has been great. I, I really, really liked it from the very beginning, um, and I think it's. I'm really curious how they're going to wrap all this up in the last episode. I hope they wrap a lot of it up. I hope they don't leave ninety percent of it dangling. Um, but but I think it's been a tour de force for the actors, especially, and it's really great to to get to see really good actors, of which Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany certainly are, and Catherine Hahn. It's really good to get to see them. Uh, showing so many sides of their skill set, you know, it's it's kind of cool, um, and and they don't actors don't often get a chance to do that kind of thing. It's super surprising to get to see them do that kind of thing in a superhero show, you know. Um, I, I am I am probably so ridiculously over the top excited about the Falcon and Winter Soldier show that's going to come on next that I I I I am almost I almost am engorged right now thinking. Um, so I can't wait because Captain America Winter Soldier is my favorite of the Marvel movies by far. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing these characters together. Um, I did my perfunctory, painful watching of the newest episode of Walking Dead that just came out on Sunday. Um, I I feel like I'm in Lost territory now because I, I watched all seven seasons of Lost and I hated it for six of those seasons. So I'm at the point now with Walking Dead where I feel I'm I'm only watching it to punish myself. <laughs> um, but I do keep watching it. Um, what else? What else nerdy? Um, what else nerdy? Um, I am reading. I'm usually pretty far behind on my superhero stuff because I read it on a digital uh, library app. So oftentimes it takes Marvel or DC a year or so to load some of the books into it. Um, I am reading Infamous Iron Man by Bendis and Malieve right now. I'm on the second trade paperback. There's only two loaded in the app. I'm not sure if there were more than that or not. Um, 
I am enjoying the living daylights out of it. And I'm actually kind of surprised that I am. Um, I, I think it's a super interesting exploration of, of Victor Von Doom in a very different way. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with what both Bendis and Malieve are doing with it. Um, and that book came out like, what, four years ago or something? I don't even know. Um, it's always it's always one that I meant to read. Just the, and just the concept of Doctor Doom as Iron Man is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it It's just... Look, it's got some flaws in it. I, I like, I, I, I am of two minds on Bendis. Um, I, I've come to appreciate him later in his career because I, I wasn't happy when I first read his Avengers work, but then I did, in fairness to him, go back and reread and read all of his Avengers work. I basically, I quit the book when he had an issue with like seven splash pages of lightning coming to Earth or something like that. Um, having li- re- having lived through the new universe once, I didn't need to relive it through it again in a in a book I was paying money for. <laughs> um, so I quit Avengers <laughs> that way back when. And um, but then I I read them all and read his Daredevil and I always liked his Daredevil even when I wasn't liking the Avengers. Um, so he's a, he's an interesting writer. It it just depends on on the book. Um, and and there's been a bunch of his stuff I've read that that you know I've been oh okay it's all right but not great and there's a bunch of his stuff I've read that I've thought this is fantastic. Um, Invincible Iron Man to me is just one of those that it it, it falls into the un, so unexpected that it's the perfect thing for him. You know, <laughs> um, he, he he's he's like he's like the perfect choice to be writing this book about this character at this time in the character's you know evolution so so i i recommend it because it, it's it's i don't know how it's going to pay off i i i'm only in i'm only at the very beginning of the second trade paperback now so i i can't guarantee you that the last few issues are going to pay off but the first six seven or so have really paid off well for me the reader um and i think that's pretty much it right now i i i i, I watch so much it slips through my mind i it, it kind of bleeds through i i nerdy stuff i i I like Mandalorian tremendously, and I'm not a big Star Wars fan in the least. Um, I did not like Wonder Woman 84. I was very disappointed by it. Um, but I like all the actors. I just didn't like the movie. Um, what else? What else? I, I've been watching t- the Titans show on HBO Max. Um, I'd seen the first season only because... I was in Mexico City for a convention right before COVID shut us all down. And they were, you can watch, you could watch Titans on Netflix International, but you couldn't watch Titan on Netflix domestic US. So because it was international, I I downloaded a bunch of the first season episodes and was watching them. And then the minute the plane takes off from Mexico City, I was watching an episode that I downloaded and the download ends in the middle. It stops abruptly. <laughs> Because you've left international space, you've left Mexican airspace into into international or domestic U.S. space, and the download actually knew that. Don't ask me how, <laughs> but it, like I was in, uh, so so in essence, I had to wait until just more recently when HBO Max loaded it all. Um, and and I'm watching the show, but I'm it's not a binge for me because I'm not enjoying it enough to binge it. But because it's Dick Grayson, I have to watch it and see what the hell they do with Dick Grayson. And so far I've yet to see the Dick Grayson I know, but I'm hoping maybe one day the episodes will show me the Dick Grayson I know. Um, the the next joke, this Dick Grayson cracks on this show will probably be the first one he cracks. 
it's um it's just far too dour and 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 fake important fake fake barley you know the the character's cursing all that stuff just bores the living daylights out of me um so ultimately the show is boring the living daylights out of me i wish it wasn't but i'm gonna keep watching it i'm just not binging it um that's that's kind of it right now as far as nerdy stuff comic book wise and sci-fi wise you know i'm reading i'm reading uh i'm rereading i'm rereading the stand which i haven't read in in years decades even i've read it two or three times when i was younger but i I haven't read it over 25 30 years i think um and and i'm finding it problematic to tell you the truth but i'm gonna finish reading it um and i've been getting into michael Connolly's bosch books for the first time i I like the bosch tv show tremendously but i'd never read the books and i'm now little by little starting to read the books again or starting to read the books for the first time i should say from the beginning like i'm trying to read them in order um so 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 that's it that's where i'm at right now well fabian thank you so much for your time today thank you for dealing with all of our snafus and tech problems and and my they were my snafus i want it on the record guys it was not your snafus it was my snafu singular i'm almost sure of it now you guys did nothing wrong (laughs) do not do not fall on that grenade boys it was me (laughs) It was all me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, be sure to click the pre-order button for Suburban Dicks coming out in, in June, correct? June 22nd it comes out. You can go to Amazon or Books A Million or Walmart or Barnes & Noble. Any any sites have it already uh, ready for pre-order. All right, pre-order Suburban Dicks. Uh, be sure to check out uh, Juggernaut uh, and X-Men Legends and Adam X is suddenly relevant again. Thank you so much, Fabian. My pleasure, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for the time. Well, thank you so much again to Fabian Nicieza for taking time out of his busy schedule um, to, to speak with us and to nerd out for, for you know a, a good amount of time and be sure to pre-order Suburban Dicks. That'll be uh, coming out June 22nd so so be sure to check that out um very very fascinating premise there um after this our final break we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations welcome back nerds for our final segment nerd commendations dave we could probably talk about this for an hour but what is your nerd commendation for this week did I mention uh, in this episode yet that I'm a huge Superman fan? I feel like I mentioned that a lot. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise that I would want to talk about the new CW superhero show, Superman and Lois. First, is it good? The answer is yes, which is why I'm not commending it. It is, however, a qualified yes. Is this the perfect Superman, the show I've been waiting for? Probably not. It's still much better than it has any right to be. The story takes place later in Superman's life. He's married to Lois, and they have two teenage sons, Jordan and Jonathan. A tragedy brings the family to Smallville, where they decide to stay for the good of the family. Turns out, there's trouble in paradise. Superman is gone a lot and misses much of his son's lives. Jonathan seems well adapted enough, but Jordan struggles with social anxiety disorder. Add to that a mysterious new villain and a real estate developer buying up land in Smallville, and Superman has his hands full. A lot of people argue that Superman is boring, and I have uh, multiple times on this podcast argued against that. 
you know, the, the notion that he's too powerful. The best Superman stories go beyond his powers. They face him with dilemmas where his powers cannot solve the problem. And Superman and Lois gets this right. It recasts Superman in a family drama, essentially. Sure, they are still su- still superheroics, but the family dynamics, Superman struggling to be a good father and husband, those are the linchpins of drama here. And they work extremely well. I've made no secret out of how much I loved the rebirth era of Superman in the comics, that fun family dynamic it created. This is not exactly that, but it is much closer than I anticipated. Now, Tyler Hoechlin is fantastic in the role of Superman. He radiates warmth as Superman and has this great aw shucks nerdiness as Clark. It, it simply works. I enjoy his performance a great deal. Elizabeth Tullock is uh, great as Lois Lane as well, bringing some of that biting sarcasm and strength the character should have. Um, I won't deny that there are some Zack Snyder-ish elements to the show, particularly how it's shot visually. Um Here I like it a lot better, though, because the presentation of Superman himself isn't so dour. I do wish the suit's colors weren't quite as washed out as they are, but that's really a minor quibble. Overall, the show captures Superman's character well so far. I wish there was a little more Superman in the Superman show, admittedly, and the focus on teen drama, the bread and butter of the CW for many years, doesn't entice me all that much. The family dynamic, though, is interesting. And I see potential for the teenage characters to grow beyond a sort of one-note CW portrayal. It's also really interesting to see them trying to to tackle mental health in a much more more relevant and respectful way than I think I've seen in superhero stories, uh, at least mainstream superhero stories, in quite a while. So count me as cautiously optimistic about this one. I could have used a little bit more of that wonderful opening montage and the suit inspired by the Fleischer cartoons, to be honest. So this is far from the perfect Superman show, at least so far, but there's potential here anchored by strong performances and a likable and, and dare I say, recognizable Superman. Uh, It would be very difficult for me to picture this Superman trying to snap somebody's neck, for example. So... As of this point right now, I'm in. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, just to preface before I, I I go on with with my thoughts, Dave, have you seen the second episode? I have not. I've only seen the pilot so far. Um, I I liked I liked the show. Um, the first after the first episode, and I like it even more after the second. So, um, I had my reservations going in with the CW being attached. I. I cannot bring myself to go back to the CW shows for the elements that, that you referenced the, the teenage drama. Um, it, it really just takes me out, um, you know, with particularly with arrow and the flash that the ones that I just can't get back into after I initially liked them because it's so samey um, with like the dramatic, you know, ground. It, it feels like they have to, um, rem- remember where they are and like remember this is a CW show so you're going to have to drag some love triangle type stuff back into it and it's just it's just irritating um, but I thought that I-, I was able to to muscle through it in the first episode and and I think it's really hitting its stride in the second episode and particularly it leans into those strong elements of the family drama second episode is a great feature for Lois um, and you know, this is a character that I'm very, very new to. 
Um, but based on, you know, discussions that we've shared and, and the readings that you've recommended to me, uh, it's, it's, you know, kind of uh, an MJ type quality where she is strong enough uh, of a character on her own being non-superpowered and, and they give her some really nice, you know, room to breathe and, and feature here. Um, I, I wholeheartedly second uh, Tyler Hecklin, um his portrayal as, as Clark Kent and Superman. He really comes off um, and, and I really have pin, been able to pinpoint it why I appreciate, you know, like the duality of Clark Kent versus Superman. And it's one of the characters that's nearest and dearest to my heart. And I've geeked out on on this episode and that's Zorro. And, and, and the, if you've actually read the book, um, the curse of Capistrano, the duality of Don Diego de la Vega, where he plays this bumbling socialite who has no interest in anything dramatic. And he's just so, um, conversely different in his public persona that you believe it. And, and, you know, so like, it's always a joke that like, how can you not tell that Superman is Clark Kent, but, but Hecklin does a really good job of, of serving up the two different personas in here and it makes it believable. Um, and, and one thing that I also appreciate and you touched on this was the mental health aspect. And it wasn't just like, Oh, this is how kids are nowadays, and 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 this is probably just a personal connection as as a father, and you know, in even further as a father of of teenagers, like I can really feel this connection, and I think that's probably the the biggest um, you know recommendation that I can make. This commendation that I can make of this show is is the way that they tackle, like you said, his powers as Superman don't help him necessarily being a father. Like they don't show you the right way to deal with, you know, the struggles of being a father and to, and, and to being, you know, having to be an absentee father because you're saving the world. Um, and I also appreciate much more in the second episode, the relationship between the two twins that they have for each other. Um, I, I was a bit worried, um, you know, with the depiction of Jonathan in the first episode that we were going to have another stereotypical all American macho man. And then, you know, Jordan was going to be like the, the nerdy one, but, um, episode two fleshed out a lot of their relationship a lot more. And I really, really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm excited to see where this show goes. It's, it's the one CW DC show that I can stomach, um, even if they have, you know, some economic anxiety ridden, you know, small town Americana residents that are all, all a-okay with big corporations coming in and taking over their town. That, that, that's a bit annoying, but um, I, I'm a fan of the show. Yeah, yeah, I can totally echo that. It's, it's a great start. Um, and really, I, I cannot say enough, uh, the more I think about it, about the portrayal of Lois Lane in this show. I, I'm actually a big fan of Amy Adams. I don't think Lois Lane was probably the uh, the best role for her, um, but I really, really enjoy her acting. But one of the things I found regrettable about the big screen Lois is that 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 spunk, that drive, that that big heart, but at the same time that hard headedness seems to have kind of sort of faded in the background on, on the big screen. And here it's much more on display, and uh, this is sort of the the lowest that I've always appreciated the most in the comic book. So I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I will totally second that because like 
you know, my my exposure to Lois Lane has consisted of of Amy Adams and and um, uh, Terry Hatcher, where they're just like, oh, damsel in distress all the time. Um, Margot Kidder, I've seen uh, Superman 78 once, so I, it's not resonant enough in my brain. Um, but, you know, when I saw this, I'm like, oh, my God, this is what Dave was talking about. You know, it's like when I was reading All Star Superman and like, yeah, this is the badass you know, woman who is, is going to stick it to the man. Like this is what I was waiting for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that they continue to grow this show in the right direction. In the meantime, Chris, you're bringing me back to the X-Men. What have you got for us? Okay. So I know, I know that you have struggled to jump into the Dawn of X and, and the complexity of Krakoa, but I, I really think that, that this, um, you know, this particular title, it, while it it takes place on Krakoa and it is in that that entire world, I feel like you could read this independently and and still enjoy it. So I'm recommending what I think is is the best of the bunch of the X books right now on the stands, and that's Hellions. Um, it's written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia. And here's the synopsis from the first trade paperback, which contains issues one through four. Bad is the new good. When the new nation of Krakoa opened its doors to all mutants and forgave all past crimes, its leaders knew that they'd have to accept some of their worst foes into the fold. But they didn't plan for what to do with them. Not to worry, Mr. Sinister has plans for the troublemakers. Meet his new hellions, Scalp Hunter, Wild Child, Empath, Nanny, Orphan Maker, Psylocke, and Havoc. Yes, the brother of Cyclops, Alex Summers. Uh, under Sinister's direction, they are sure to become productive members of mutant society and the new mutant team that you're going to hate to love. Though right now, the Hellions can barely keep from killing one another, let alone find a way to fit into Krakoan society. Of course, that might be just what Mr. Sinister is counting on when he sends them to clean up his messes. So this, for me, um, is essentially Marvel's mutant suicide squad, and it's done so right um wells's dialogue it's smart it's witty it's snarky as hell like it's so funny it makes me laugh out loud reading it uh every issue um mr sinister nathaniel essex uh to quote tony stark is a full tilt diva and he takes center stage in this title like he is center stage all the lights he gets to just be ridiculously dramatic for no reason and and this is the the glow up uh as as i've talked on x of words the glow up on on mr sinister in this title is is real so the best part of the series in my opinion um is a delicious showdown spectacular between mr sinister and jamie braddock who is um the brother of betsy braddock sometimes known as psylocke and and captain britain um in which a deal between uh sinister and and jamie uh, can only be struck when Sinister surrenders his deliciously dramatic cape uh, to Jamie in order to book safe passage through his kingdom of Avalon. So like you have these two really overly dramatic characters and he said, uh, you know, basically it comes down to, I want your cape. And that's the only way that you can safe, safely pass through my land. Um, as the solicitation above suggests, you can't help but root for this merry band of misfit toys, the damaged goods, if you will. Except for Empath, he's literally the worst. Um, but perhaps the best thing about this title is its feature of Psylocke, and I mean Quanon, um, not that body-snatching colonizer Betsy Braddock. Um, 
we're finally getting the chance to see Quan on shine in her own right without the shadow of Betsy looming over her after she occupied her body for over 30 years. Um, pound for pound, Hellions has easily been the best book to come out of the Dawn of X era. Each and every one of the now 10 issues that um, has been a can't miss laugh out loud adventure. So Hellions by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia is my nerd commendation for this week. It is all the characters that you were like forgotten about over the the continuity of x-men that you were like how are they going to be able they're awful these are horrible horrible individuals how are they going to be able to coexist on this new normal in krakoa and this is the story of how now see this sounds interesting to me and you're exactly right it's when i was reading the um sort of the the summary of the first trade for research purposes i thought to myself this is like suicide squad krakoa edition and it's it's it sounds great, but you know you also have me right. The Krakoa era of X Men has not clicked with me yet. It's not quite what I'm looking for in an X Men comic. Maybe this will be. I, I will say that I have nothing but respect for the Krakoa era, though. Even though I I struggle as a reader to get into it, it's absolutely incredible to me how many X Men adjacent books this approach has created. It's almost become a publishing line unto itself. And that's impressive because it opened up a place for so many minor and side characters and giving them a chance to shine. I wished DC would make an effort to find a place for many of its B-list and C-list characters. Instead, we get about 8 billion Batman books every month. Here I am waiting for an elongated man detective comic book, for example. So I have nothing but respect for this approach to the X-Men. So this sounds interesting. I, I'm probably try to give it a shot, but man... That Krakoa connection, the main X-Books are so dense. I want to have fun reading comics, not feel like I'm doing homework. Yeah, for nothing else, like the main reason that, you know, other aside from my fandom of, of being a mutant fan is that I'm holding out hope that you'll you'll somehow make that connection is because this is such a paradigm shift of what the history of the X-Men has been. They're done begging people, begging humankind to stop you know, slaughtering them, please stop killing us. And so they have had enough of that and they have gone and created their own sovereign nation. And so instead of 30, 40, 50 years of the same old tropes, the same old story of we're just trying to live and stop being killed and stop fight. You know, it's, we're, we're tired of fighting for a world that to quote the always opening passage that hates and fears us. We're just going to go do our own thing. And so you get to tell so many different stories and feature so many different characters because you're not running from humankind and, and constantly being massacred. And there, right there, the when you describe the baseline idea behind this run, I adore that. I adore the premise. The execution has yet to hook me, but the premise itself, I think, is fantastic. I, I think, and I, I probably have told you this before, if you do the Hickman Marvel run, I think it will be very, very beneficial into like that whole kind of reset and the denseness, um, you know, like of, of Hickman as a writer. It's very like an, an intellectual. It's very like avant-garde. It's very like I feel like I'm taking a graduate course and like this is like research material that I have to dive into. So it's not, I, I totally second what you're saying. I wholeheartedly agree. It is not something that you can easily just dive into his type of writing particularly. 
All right, that wraps up our nerd commendations and another episode as a result of the Nerd by Word podcast. As always, we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to our ramblings. And a special thanks to Fabian Nicieza for joining us today in this special uh, giant-sized episode of the Nerd by Word. Um, as always, we would appreciate for you to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. You can also... Uh, find us at nerdbyword.com. Uh, nerd and if you're on an Apple device, make sure you leave us a five-star review and rating if you feel so inclined. And we want to hear from you and what you think of the pod. And if you have any feedback for us, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at nerdbyword, on Facebook at the Nerd by Word, And of course, you can find us individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And you can always uh, interact with us Saturday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern for hashtag Drunk Pete, where we live tweet uh, Spider-Man comics and just hang out and have a good time amongst nerds. Uh, but as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>